Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's The Wonky Show. International students have been in the news. We'll get behind the story. The Student Mental Health Task Force has reported there's changes to the access regime in Scotland and an election is coming. But what's on students' minds? It's all coming up. Because a lot of the comments of the article in The Times seem to focus um, on you know, how their children have struggled to get three A-stars or four A-stars to strive to get into Durham, Exeter, A and other. So why should these foreigners be able to buy their way in? Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and here to help us understand what's going on, as usual, three fabulous guests. Uh, in Chester, Helen O'Sullivan is Provost and Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Chester. Helen, your highlight of the week, please? Um, my highlight of the week is this morning because it isn't raining and it isn't windy. <laughs> well, there you go. Glorious sunshine. Uh, across Chester, I assume. So, also in Leafy Harborn this morning, Smita Jamdar is partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martino. Smita, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight of the week was yesterday when I did a session with some heads of school at a particular institution looking at uh, what's going on in HE and how it affects them. And it was just brilliant. They were such committed, interested, intelligent people. It was great to spend an afternoon with them. Excellent stuff. And in Carefully this week, Sunday Blake is Associate Editor at Wonky. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week was I went back to the cinema to watch Poor, Thing, uh, Poor Things again, um, which is all kind of controversy around whether it's feminist or not. But I just went for the costumes because the costumes are fantastic um so everyone go and watch poor things and yeah that's that's a highlight so yes we start this week with international students at the weekend we got a sunday time splash and the story has run and run all week sunday yeah so um the sunday times did a you know in quote uh, inverted commas um an investigation into international recruitment in Roscoe universities and the headline uh, was cash for courses which is very funny because I actually think it's very enlightening at all in a sector that infamously charges tuition fees <laughs> um, but yeah the central accusation is basically um, Britain's top universities are paying sort of middlemen recruiters to get um, overseas students on really low grades um, much lower than those are required by UK applicants to come to sort of universities um and it's like the kind of messaging is that they're taking the place of british students um without being like at the level of competence that they should be for the the course um it used like undercover investigators to speak to recruiters um and they had some like really sort of like juicy sound bites so like you know backdoor and leeway and that kind of thing um but when we looked into it, obviously, it turned out that a lot of this was foundation years. Um, and this sort of led to a very misleading table, which compared entry requirements for degree programs with foundation years. And obviously, those are two separate things, um, as well as sort of international year one entry routes where students sort of they receive like additional support and then progress to year two of the degree. 
Um, and then the DFE, <laughs> DFE announced in response that it was urgently investigating. Um, and, you know, quite what this means, aside from bringing up vice chances on a Sunday morning, it wasn't very clear. Um, and then elsewhere, the University of Oxford's uh, Migration Observatory, they released a report on international students entering the UK labour market, um, finding that more than 60% of those moving from the graduate route to skilled worker visa in the year ending June 2023 took up roles as care workers. And the number, the, the, the exact number for this was 26,200. Um and the authors are basically arguing that uh, international students switching from graduate um, to long-term, they, they are coming and then switching from graduate visas to long-term work visas in the UK, but they're doing it for jobs that they're significantly overqualified for. Minister. I thank my honourable friend uh, for his, his question. And of course, I agree that on entry requirements, we should ensure we're comparing like for like. Absolutely. And but, uh, are being fair on our brilliant domestic students. But I was appalled to see the reporting over the weekend, which clearly showed bad practice in the use of agents. And that is not acceptable. I met with, as I said, UK and the VCs yesterday, and we're going to sort this out. There's an investigation by the DfE. Great. Now, so a roller coaster week, Helen, in the in the international student debate, as usual. Let's start with the kind of Sunday Times thing. I, I think it's fair to say the sector put up a robust defence of its position across the course of the week, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, my, my first thought when I read it um, was to congratulate the Sunday Times on their fantastic scoops, such as discovering that universities run foundation year courses. <laughs> some of them are international foundation year courses and some of them are in partnership with private providers. So, you know, it, that, that is hardly a scoop. And I, I suspect some of the universities involved were less than pleased with everything that was said in those videos. But we don't know how many hours and hours and hours of video footage were taken where nothing controversial was, was said. So it, it wasn't particularly great journalism, I don't think. I mean, you know, a, a Chester, like, like many universities, we've seen significant increases in international students. And we run our own international foundation year, not with a private provider. But the, the impact that international students have had on our city of Chester and the university is, is enormous. And, and as, as everybody knows, there are endless reports detail, detailing the importance of uh, international students to the economy. And, you know, let's remember that with post-study work visas, in a few years' time, these are our doctors, nurses, vets, dentists, you know, all professions that we are short of at the moment. So, um, you know, I, I think I think this, this goes to a broader issue, really, because a lot of the comments under the article in The Times seems to focus um, on, you know, how their children had struggled to get three A-stars or four A-stars to strive to get into Durham, Exeter, A and other. So, why should these foreigners be able to buy their way in without realising that without the international students, there would be fewer places at Durham, Exeter, and their children may have struggled even more. Smita, one of the bits that I thought was really interesting this week, so Alison Pearson did a pretty vicious and unpleasant kind of op-ed in the Telegraph, kind of rounding it all up, but there was a line in it that I thought was fascinating, which basically said, look, it's not as if people like her or the people in her comments underneath can do the same unless they're in kind of widening access categories. They can't buy their way in in the way that international students can. Now, clearly international students are helping fund the whole sector and these are different types of courses. But that claim of unfairness for some parents will cut through to that kind of audience, won't it? I suppose if you want to look at it like that, then we'd have to sort of reopen the whole question of how domestically we pay for higher education. Because as you know, 
there's a reason why there's a, a you can't just say I'll pay full fees and, and you know get my son or daughter into your institution um, and that's the cap now if in, if we really want a conversation about that it can't just be dominated by the sort of few people who could afford to pay 30 40 grand to send somebody to to, to an institution it needs to start again and nobody's got the appetite to do that I think what it reflects though is two things first of all just the kind of utter lack of understanding uh, amongst Alison Pearson in particular, but probably some of those commenting about how this how this works. You know, why are we in the position we're in? And it's very easy to just look at universities and say, "You've made mistakes. You're ma- you know making bad decisions. You're disadvantaging us." But it sits in the context of such a broader set of policies that universities didn't choose; they were sort of you know forced on them to some extent. And then the second aspect of it is that um, where what is the benefit? of this sort of journalism. It was very, very poorly put forward. It wasn't clear. Um, It was not comparing like with like and so on. And all it's done is create a huge amount of anxiety that's utterly divorced from the reality of the situation. Removing international students isn't going to mean that it's easier for your kid to get into the university you want to send them to. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and I guess that's the the key thing, isn't it? I mean, I guess the other aspect Sunday was the... um, you know the kind of shaky video the, uh, of of what agents were saying and um, DFE. You know Robert Half on DFE announced an investigation into the antics of agents. I'm sure I've seen OFS announce an investigation into the antics of agents back in 2020 that went nowhere, and I'm sure I've seen the Home Office announce one of those too. I mean, we we never seem to be able to get a grip on this agent issue, do we? Okay, so I, c- I can answer that question. Um, I'm I'm very quickly going to be a little bit facetious about something you asked, um, Samita, um, and and this is just because. Like, as you know, I, I mix with very diverse groups of people. And for my sins, I have many an old Etonian in my social circles. Um, and I have to say that the amount of them who are like, oh, yeah, 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 I got a DDD at A-level. And my housemaster, he said, oh, this won't do at all. And, you know, a quick call and they're off to Christchurch, right? Um, and admittedly, like these men that I'm talking to who, who went that way, that route to Oxford, like they're in their 50s and 60s. So it might not be current practice. But as I was reading the Times piece in the comments, I was like, I wonder how many of you benefited from that little system. Do you know what I mean? Like just just, just putting that out there. Um, it is it is bad journalism. And the data they used was absolutely horrendous. Um, DK has, um, you know, looked at this on the site. I really recommend everyone reads his article. Just to defend my alma mater, by the way, Exeter, if you look at the stats, they're actually down on international students this year, um, which I thought was like, okay, they're not, they're not including that in the piece. Um, but there was another, there was a sort of section in the article where they said analysis of degree results show that students from outside the EU have been performing far worse than UK students, and they are twice as likely to receive a lower or a lower second or third class um, degree. And that, that was that's a direct quote from the article, and, and that's such bad data because like we don't know if that's comparable to anything. We don't know where the degree. Sh- degrees students are doing we don't know if it's the same courses and also like correlation isn't causation so we actually don't really know what's happening here and I've been doing um focus groups of international students on the cost of living and um belonging right and they're telling me that they don't know one international student who isn't bed sharing because of the lack of housing so again like I'm not commenting on those stats because I don't know where they're from in the article but if indeed international students are getting lower grades there's a range of plausible reasons to explore than simply it's that they first did a foundation degree and you know 
obviously when people say like we want to look into um agents like it's not necessarily the foundation courses which are standard practice and have been for a long time it's promising them that they're going to find housing or like do you see what I mean like there's a kind of angle here where actually what international students are being told about coming to the UK and having a student experience here there are problematic elements to that that will impact their great grades and outcomes and attainment but it's not doing a foundation degree um and I also just thought like from a sort of feeling not thought point of view that the piece was really mean-spirited in like it was really framed as like incapable international students are getting places above very clever British students. And I think that's a really deeply unpleasant framing with almost like echoes of replacement theory, which is actually quite dangerous thinking. Like I'm quite nervous when I think about this and maybe I'm overthinking it, but there was almost like a deliberate, like all the quotes, for example, were from people with Asian surnames. And I can't help but think that that's intentional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a there was a there was a, there was, there was a particularly unpleasant tone to the whole thing that then you know Alison Alison Pearson ramped up to twelve. Yeah, I don't want to just talk about like the facts and the data here. I do want to point out that that is deeply uncomfortable and it's not something that we should be tolerating. Now, now, now Helen, I, I, later in the week we got this Migration Observatory report that was really interesting because it basically said that you know a huge percentage of students that switched from graduate route to um, skilled visa route are in the care sector. And as a result, we'd have to assume that plenty of those students were using their two graduate route years or one graduate year in the care sector. And as a result, I think we'd have to assume that a hell of a lot of students are propping up the care sector whilst students. That is really interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. And I think, you know, I made the point that with the um, post-study work visas, that these students, you know, are our future doctors, nurses, whatever. They're, They're also, as you say, they are propping up our care um, service and this is this is one of the things that people who want fewer international students or fewer migrations in general um, they, where do they think those carers are going to come from where do they think people who are you know we have so many um, foreign people in the um, in the health service in nurses and what have you where are these people coming from I mean I think I think this whole thing uh, I think Sunday's absolutely right there is an under narrative around all of this um, which is that too many people are going to university so all of these uh, politicians and economists the underlying narratives that there are too many people going to university and so we should have fewer people there we should have fewer people there so we don't need the international students to prop it up yet curiously their own children tend to go to university and it's that um, other people's children who should train to be plumbers. So that narrative that my children should be able to go to university and not be propped up, not have a sector propped up by international students, because I find that a bit distasteful, but everybody else's children should train to be plumbers. So I think that's what's going on here. It's part of that um, narrative around too many people going to university. I, I mean, it's really interesting listening to because, you know, clearly... Given that the Migration Advisory Committee have got a review on of the graduate route, if, if it is the case that, you know, kind of shutting it down would collapse Britain's care home system, we'd have to assume that ministers will back off from, you know, doing anything dramatic. But on the other hand, there's not a lot to be proud of, is there? In, you know, charging people <laughs> NHS, you know, fees and visa fees and so on to be working all hours propping up our care home system whilst they're trying to be full-time students. I think though this is this is sort of what Helen and and Sunday were talking about, isn't it? That we've we've got this all wrapped up into the wider question of you know do we need migration? What kind of migration do we need? Who should we allow in? And there is a really unpleasant angle where we're seeing 
migration is essentially a commodity that you switch on and off rather than human beings who are living their lives and want to, you know, make choices and settle and, and do all the kinds of things that any normal person would want to do. Um, the, the most alarming thing, I think, for the, for the sector and indeed for, for all of us is, is whether anyone is really going to join all those dots up. Um, my worry is that having made a lot of rather um, grand promises around migration and coming under pressure to make even more no one is going to work it through and say, well, if we do stop these people, to, you know, switching into these routes and, and doing these um these these jobs, who is going to do them? Um, there's just no, I've got no confidence at all that government's capable of that level of sophistication. Yeah, and someday we've talked before, haven't we, about the way in which kind of government departments don't really seem to coordinate over all this sort of stuff. You know, one of the things I often say is that, you know, that initial impact assessment that the Home Office did on the graduate route didn't think about place, didn't think about infrastructure and so on. And then, you know, the kind of rest is history. But in the run up to the election, I certainly get a sense that this is very, very political. And there's not a lot here that's about sensible thinking or cross-government department you know departmental working and so on this a lot of this is about the 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 kind of the wars in the Tory party isn't it it's uh it talks a little bit to the next um agenda point actually around sort of like young people and um like voting intentions and stuff um I would love to see a breakdown of opinion on international student that comes from uh, that's broken down by like generational cohorts because like you know, in the Times, obviously, you do get this like huge concern around um, Times readers, children not going to university. But I'd, I'd be really interested to see if like applicants feel the same because I, I don't think they do. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, I, I think the other thing as well, and I say this all the time, and it was only because we're talking about like, you know, who goes to university and who becomes a plumber. Like, it, in order to in order to address the fact that if, if indeed we think too many people come to university for a start, in order to address this, we have to have a huge restructure of how we value different types of labour and how we put brain above brawn. And, you know, this idea that training to be a plumber is not, a you know, an honourable pursuit and poor people should be trained to be plumbers. And like, actually... Why don't you sit Hugo down at his fee pay in sixth form and ask him if he wants to be a plumber? Because he might do, you know. But like you, you like we've not done that. We haven't. We have. We have such a like like we are so unprogressive when it comes to what we value in terms of labour. Like we all know during the pandemic that the people who kept this country running were the people who were stocking supermarket shelves. And again, I work in higher education. It seems absolutely bizarre to me to be sat, like on a podcast going well what about things that don't need degrees and why don't we value them you know but like that like if you're turning around to all the students you know state school students students on free school meals private school students and saying the only way to succeed in life is to go to university then they're all going to go and then we're going to deal with the numbers of them so like we have to we have to look at the entire labour market, the entire skills, you know, and to you, know, to to be fair, there are some conservative ministers who are who are talking about this. Now, now, one final thing, Helen. Obviously, at the end of a fortnight in which the National Audit Office found organised crime and fraud in some parts of the sector, and the Office for Students apparently found a big cohort of international students that hadn't got the requisite language skills and had been recruited by a third party. You know, in some ways, the Sunday Times story not really getting the right problem represents a bullet dodged, doesn't it? 
Well, I think there are, it isn't unproblematic, this this whole situation with the agents and what have you, but there are, and I, I can't recall the details, but there are um, ethical frameworks that you can sign up to around how you use um, agents on what, what they're promised and what have you. And at Chester, we, we've we've signed up to that. So I think universities can take an ethical approach to this and to check what their agents are doing and what they're offering um, because nobody wants, you know, those those consequences that, that you've just talked about. But if I could if I could just come back to, to Sunday's point, the, the issue from the other end of the telescope is that we do need more graduates, you know, so ironically to the narrative, the if you look at any reports about jobs of the future and UK put one out, I think, in October, um, and we need something like four and a half million more graduates by whatever but date in the future in health, in technology, in data science, in education, in, in all of these areas. So actually, you know, the idea that we need fewer people at universities, I do agree with you that we need to value other forms of, of training and development, but we do need we do need all those graduates and we need them to be, um, you know, there to support the, the growing needs of the economy in the next 10 years. Great. So lots more uh, analysis and comment on the site about all of that. Uh, now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Ty Caffrey, currently the head of impact at UCL. Grace Gottlieb, head of research policy at UCL, and myself have been blogging about the development of the people, culture and environment element of REF 2029. We reflect on how the lessons and processes from the introduction of impact in previous REF iterations could provide clues as to how to develop and establish people, culture and environment. This includes thoughts on how Hefke and counterparts work to build credibility and confidence for the establishment of impact and the broader effects that this has had for assessing and supporting impact around the UK. We consider how the sector might learn from this history to establish a robust and credible set of criteria for people, culture and environment. While the development of this element may involve compromise and imperfection, we see a fantastic opportunity to improve our understanding of the relationship between research processes and outcomes and to build momentum in transforming the way we do research for the better. Now, next up this week, we've got an interim report from a DFE task force on mental health, Smita. Yes, Jim. So um, mental health is another one of those issues which I think uh, is, is, has been a long-running concern for people observing the sector and, and seeing the experience of, of, of some students. So the, the, the DfE had established a higher education mental health implementation task force, uh, which produced an interim report this week. And essentially, the task force had really been asked to look at um, four four types of activity that might improve mental health, such as everybody adopting a charter, everybody making sure that their processes for dealing with mental health issues were as, as, as sort of user-friendly, et cetera, um, as they can be, everybody making sure they were establishing the prevalence of problems uh, in a consistent way. And so this is really very much a progress report. Um, I think the task force has probably got into the weeds a little bit and realised that some of these uh, aspirations are very easy to say, but harder to deliver. And I think, Jim, you and I probably have a slight disagreement about where they've got to with their progress report, because, um, for example, with things like adopting charters, uh, they are considering whether it would be appropriate to ask everybody to sign up to the same charters or whether there are other ways for particular types of institution to um, 
demonstrate that they are achieving the necessary standards and in particular some of the smaller and specialist institutions should they have a different type of approach um, to, to demonstrate that they're, they're taking this you know steps to deal with these issues and I think there is something in that for me because um, working as I do with quite a range of institutions smaller institutions can sometimes have a very different sort of student experience a much more personal one than some of the bigger institutions. Um, and as a result, probably what you need to have wrapping around it is slightly different. Um, the bit that I think I was particularly interested in, maybe we can discuss this uh, you know, a little bit more, is around the processes and the policies, et cetera, that institutions adopt. I think that's something that everybody could be looking at without waiting for any further um, insight. And I think we have to keep an eye on how this pro process sits with other developments. So University of Southampton's uh, coroner's uh, report earlier in the week that was reported on, which made recommendations following a, a tragic um, death by suicide. And also, of course, the Abrahart case, which will be um, giving its judgment in the near future. Yeah, it's a, it's, a it's a set of moving parts, I think, for institutions. Final point I'll make before I sort of hand back to you, Jim, is we know uh, that, that there, there's work to be done here, but we also know that institutions are facing other acute pressures around finances and so on. And it is about how do we make the space for this work to be done without it um, just, you know, falling on the on the, the laps of people who are incredibly uh, under pressure in a whole host of ways and then it just won't get done. So I think we need to create that space for this work to be taken forward. Yes, I mean, Helen, that kind of resourcing issue, uh, to some extent, both for the kind of task force itself, but then for institutions who might be kind of taking forward recommendations. I guess on one level, you know, making some changes to language in policies or the way in which emails are framed is one thing. But, um, you know, one of the bits that really stood out for me was the stuff on um, staff and the kind of role of staff and, you know, whether staff should all be trained in, you know, kind of mental health competencies and so on, which was certainly a recommendation from the coroner's report in that Southampton thing. That that whole area of kind of personal academic support and its relationship to this agenda is really tricky, isn't it? It is. And, and I have to say that coroner's report is a really difficult read for anyone who works in a university and, and of course I feel enormous sympathy for the family of, of the student Christopher who, at Southampton who died but I also feel sorry for the academic staff who will have worked with Christopher because every academic that I've ever worked with over the years has always had the best interests of their students at heart so I think what you say about resources is really interesting but the coroner's report and the task force so they're sort of um, start, you know they're, they're developing areas of, of comments seem to be directed around systems and processes and, you know, we there's been a lot of work done in the sector, um, uh, particularly at Nottingham Trent, in sort of tracking the processes uh, that, that students uh, attend and what have you through learner analytics that we can make appropriate, um, you know, identification of students who might be at risk and then appropriate mental health support is offered and provided. So I think that joined up approach to a system that provides early warning. We also need better um, approaches to reasonable adjustment for declared disabilities to encourage that disclosure. But I think that um, one of the things, because I agree, we can't just ask academics to keep doing more. Eventually, the system will fall over. So at Chester, like many others, we're moving to a new academic framework with block delivery. And we're looking really carefully at things that support the development of social learning, a sense of belonging, and that specifically focuses on well-scaffolded assessment. And there's lots of evidence out there in the sector about things that you can do in the curriculum that support good, good mental health. 
Um, and I think that that what we're also planning to do, and I know other universities are ahead of us here, is piloting different approaches to that academic support. So what we're looking at is, is in particular areas where there are high staff-student ratios, looking at, um, at employing different types of staff who we can train and develop to, to specifically provide that support and that triage in the departments um, and help our students you know, find the, the support that they need. But it is difficult and it needs it does need a big joined up uh, approach. I mean, it's, you know, someday I've read a number of these coroner's reports over the past few years, a number of the families kind of involved in the kind of national group that's been campaigning on the duty of care stuff. And, you know, you'll have seen in the piece, one of the, one of the things that I think is going on is that coroners are kind of thinking back to their student experience, which may well have included far smaller class sizes and kind of small tutorials and, and, and whatever. But, you know, it strikes me that, that that model of the academic who does a bit of teaching, a bit of research, a bit of knowledge exchange, a bit of pastoral care, um, lots of admin and so on that is coming under real pressure isn't it yeah so one of the things that um I mean I'm so glad you brought up like you know student numbers and stuff because one of the things that frustrates me a little bit is um when like there is I've, I've done a lot of reading around so but like there is a lot of evidence that shows that people who have suicidal intentions um or ideation um they do better in the community than in a clinical setting or you know being sectioned and that is like that is backed up um but the thing that frustrates me about that now is that you can only do better in your community if there is a community to go to and if you're in a class of 10 that's more likely to be you know a group that you you know people know your name people know your um, academic interests all the things that sorry to blow me on trumpet again but all the things that the wonky research on belonging said are actually quite important which is why I was you know like sort of like yes <laughs> when Helen brought up things being built into the curriculum but you know if you're if you're living five miles away from campus having to get an unreliable bus service and sitting in a room of 200 people like is that really a community and you didn't want to go to freshers fair on your own and so on yeah right exactly and you know it's so clinical everything around suicide is so clinical and it's not it's not always the extreme conclusion of mental health issues that like we should be focusing like we should be looking at like why are students feeling suicidal in the first place what can we do to manage that how can we talk about this in a way that doesn't send institutions into liability panic do you see what I mean like there are ways of building belonging building and it's really difficult because no one is turning around to institutions and saying you need to replace the NHS that's not what's happening and if that is if, if, if someone is saying that then they shouldn't be um, but people with suicidality and, you know, so many people I know have lost someone to suicide. They don't exist in a clinical vacuum. They exist in a community. And that's that's where universities, I feel, need to step in and, and focus their sort of re resources on. I think if we, uh, we can look at this in all sorts of areas. If you look at freedom of speech or you look at sexual misconduct or everything, we always focus on the really, really difficult end of the uh, issue, which is how do we stop someone uh, from taking their own lives? And 
actually, there's a whole lot of stuff that we should be focusing on that's much further away from that, which is about how do we make sure that people don't get themselves into that um, place in the first place? So what can we do to support? And, you know, things that Helen said about including it in the curriculum is of thinking about it in curriculum design is obviously really important. And that does sort of go back to the, the your point, Jim, that, you know, if, we, if we're expecting members of staff who are at that place where they might spot early problems or they might spot at things that could be changed, is it easy for them to sort of take some action over that? Um, they don't want to feel that they're the only people responsible for doing something about this, which is where I think that whole system looking at, you know, what is the route for somebody raising a concern and then action being done about it? How easy is it for people to navigate? And I know I'm a lawyer and I'm so boring about procedures and stuff like that, but it is horrendous when you look at the way some of them are written. You know, I've been doing this 30 years and I still struggle to work out where the hell this thing is supposed to go. So, you know, generally stepping back and saying, what's the easiest route to fix this has got to be something we look at. Smita, you picked up the, my, my kind of mild cynicism about the uh, task force. Um, and, you know, I'll, you know, my excuse is I followed closely the last time that DfE had a student mental health task force, which um, I think I described on the site this week as a cluster shambles. Um, <laughs> the, thing, the thing that I thought was kind of, you know, really odd in the, in the thing was lo- there's loads of overlap with uh, what John Blake's doing and what OFS is doing actually in the regulatory space. And, and it, I mean, you know, on the evidence of the report this week, it's not just that that overlap hasn't been considered. It's like, it's like the task force hasn't noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, it, it, I mean, you know, the, I, I would have made this point in our earlier conversation about the international student investigation. In a way, the role of DFE in all this is quite unclear to me. Uh, you know, we have got a regulator who's looking at some aspects of this. Um, we we need to join this up and, and make sure that, yeah, I can fully understand why perhaps the people sitting on the task force haven't been following in minute detail where the access and participation stuff has got to because there'll be somebody else within their institutions who's looking at that Um, but the risk we run is that you've got parallel strands of activity that one would hope at least don't conflict but certainly don't coordinate to maximum value and that's what we need to try and um, you know get to the bottom of because some of this early stage intervention or early stage thinking around what we do with mental health is very relevant to access and participation so it absolutely needs to be in there and that might well be the better place for it. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. (laughs) 
so much of students' lives takes place under the radar, yet it's students' encounters around campus, their confidence in independent learning, and the pressures of juggling their work and personal commitments that shape how they engage with learning and teaching. To really enable students to thrive requires knowing about the full extent of their lives, not just the bits that universities can most readily see and touch. But time and money are in short supply for universities and students, and with no let upon funding in sight, carefully choosing interventions that will help students to both survive and thrive has become more important and even tougher. Deepening our collective understanding of what is in university's gift to influence and how to do the things that make a difference is vital. So at our Secret Life of Students event, we'll be interrogating the contemporary higher education policy questions through the student lens, bringing together sector leaders and managers, as well as student leaders and student union managers, to figure out how to respond in the student interest. What role should universities and SUs play in stoking or calming conflict on campus? What are the expectations we should place on students themselves to create a good learning experience? How are they learning and how could we both measure it and support it outside of the classroom? On the day we'll round up key figures into the student experience from the past year and launch exciting new findings on the student experience beyond the classroom. That's the secret life of students. London, 12th of March. See you there. Now. Earlier this week, Scotland's new Commissioner for Fair Access published his first annual report, and DK has had a read. Hi, this is David Kernahan, and this would represent the latest in a series that I like to call All Policy is Basically Data Definition. So, Scotland's Fair Access Commissioner, John McKendrick, released his first annual report while in post this week. He made a decision that a lot of people of Scotland have been waiting for for quite a long time. In the past, providers in Scotland have been asked to meet access targets linked to the Scottish Index for Multiple Deprivation, SIMD. As you might expect given the name, this is an area-based measure that looks at all kinds of different measures of deprivation to try and find the most deprived places in Scotland. And providers have traditionally been asked to look at the most deprived 20% of places and try to improve their student recruitment from those areas. On the face of it, this sounds like a fair thing, but in practice, if you're based in northern or rural Scotland, there are not many of these uh, data zones, which is the unit of area involved in SIMD, that are in that lowest 20%. This is basically because the zones up north are larger and they're more likely to be including a variety of people from a variety of backgrounds, and thus they never quite add up to being in the lowest 20%, even though they may contain people who have experienced quite serious deprivation. Um, institutions have been asking, and indeed the previous commissioner, Peter Scott, agreed last time that we need to take a serious look at the use of this measure. So this confirmation from John McKendrick that these measures are going to go from targets and institutions are going to be asked to pick their own measures and set themselves targets against them, which will be approved centrally, is something that has made a lot of people really rather happy. Now, finally this week, NUS has published a manifesto for the general election and there's polling on student views, Helen. Oh, yes. So the NUS has unveiled its manifesto for the next general election, which they put together based on a consultation exercise or a series of consultation exercises with over 10,000 students. So they believe that 
radical, bold changes needed. And their demands include uprating and backdating maintenance loans in line with inflation, ensuring that 35% of student bed spaces are affordable. I don't understand why only 35, but anyway, and repealing culture wars, fake laws, and here, here to all of that. Um, so accompanying this manifesto, the NUS has also released the results of online polling of more than 7,000 students. And they use questions around topics such as the abol- abolition of tuition fees, where unsurprisingly, 55% of respondents said this was a priority for them, Um, student living costs and postgraduate funding. Um, And elsewhere, polling from PLMR featured uh, in a blog on Wonky this week revealed that 50% of 18 to 24-year-olds say that their general election vote will depend on what parties say on issues that matter to them. And of those issues, health was their first priority, which I suppose might surprise some people as health might be seen as an issue for older people to worry about. But linked to what we were just saying about mental health, maybe that's where that um, priority is coming for them. Um, Less surprisingly, health uh, was followed by education and skills. However, most worrying for those of us that are fans of democracy, 35% said they'd got no plans to vote in the next general election, compared to just 12% of the over 55s. So, so meanwhile, the Financial Times this week has taken a look at a new global gender divide that's opening up between the political views of young men and young women. And this is only just, um, I've only just become aware of this. Um, and But it's becoming clearly visible in many countries. Um, so the trend is that young women are moving to the left in their views, while young men are standing still or, or moving to the right. And the Guardian's reporting this morning that boys and men from Generation Z are more likely than older men to believe that feminism has done more harm than good. So I suppose we're often told that Gen Z are highly progressive. But then another survey will show that they're surprisingly conservative. So breaking this down by sex provides an explanation for some of that. Young women are more progressive and young men are more conservative. And this is less marked in the UK, but it's still there. I mean, in South Korea and the US, it, it's it's uh, it's staggering. Um, but I think this could lead to some interesting challenges on campus in the next few years. Yes, now let's start there someday. So uh, this is an entirely unscientific piece of evidence, but I was on a university campus on Monday. Uh, The taxi dropped me off at entirely the wrong part of campus. So weaving my way from one corner of a campus to another, I'd got this on my mind because I've just been reading it on the train. And (laughs) every single group of students I saw were either groups of what appeared to be men or what appeared to be women. Now, you know, is this a thing? Right. Listen, this is my, okay, I've got two things. One is my little pet theory. And that's, we've got a generation of women who've been raised during a pandemic where they witnessed the imbalance of domestic labor in households, uh, which directly, by the way, impacted women's pay and work output. So if you look at the McKinsey and company report, women make up 40% of global employment, but they accounted for 54% of uh, job losses during the pandemic. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, the kids saw that. They were at home watching it. Um, but yeah, I, I I think I reject the idea that it is that men are becoming more because they use left and right, but then like it, people kind of use that synonymous with like misogynistic and feminist, right? So this idea that like as the girls get more feminist, they're pushing men to right-wing misogynists but no one has any evidence that that's that's the way around it is right like are you sure it's not just that like the more boldly misogynistic Andrew Tate Harriton men 
get the more young women um, like they're seeing that and they're confronting deeply sexist ideas in their daily life and they're you know they have a need for more progressive movements but I also think that um, there's something else going on here and that's to do with like the economic position of our country you know the conduct of politicians especially during lockdown the times piece on international students Um, and the reason I say this is because Um, There's a paper I read last night when I was like, what is going on here? Um, It's from a couple of years ago. And it says that young men are more likely to resent women's gains in areas of like long-standing unemployment. So in areas of the UK where there is high job competition, um, they're more likely to resent women. And also they're more likely to resent, like the men who do resent this are more likely to do this if they think that state institutions are unfair, which is obviously like a narrative that is sort of circulating. We we have a tendency to see this as somehow a, a, a reversing of a position that had previously applied that, you know, but the circumstances have, were not the same. Um, and by that, I mean, and I see this in, in all aspects of equality, when it, when the position was it was a mainly male-dominated environment and a few women were coming in, the terms on which those women came in were dictated by what was allowed by the dominant culture. So yeah, it was fine, you'll get the women in and so on. Now it's much more equal. I think this is partly what's, what Sunday is saying, that the conversation has changed. This isn't about um, being given rights by a dominant male culture. This is about asserting uh, that you you know there are there are rights for you, you to take you shouldn't be putting up with misogyny and things like that and that's creating a different dynamic from from you know from being in the position where it was being granted to someone to it's being taken from you and I think that is what's creating this concern now we can have a long debate about whether that's right or wrong but if we do not stop it if we do not do something to address it then we will end up in the position we are with race uh, with sexual orientation and so on where you get a group of people saying no this has gone too far women have got too much now uh, you know non, non-white people have got too much now gay people have got too much now you know so so we've got to recognize human beings do not readily see their rights eroded if that's how it's perceived by them Helen just back on the um the the NUS manifesto thing um obviously there's some stuff in there about um whether student issues are even going to come up in the election given students propensity to vote and the kind of you know the predominant occupation of the political parties around older voters um obviously technically there's a kind of duty certainly on, on universities in England to facilitate electoral registration should universities be doing more well, I think that um, that thing that struck me was um, in the previous report about 35% saying they won't vote. So I think the NUS, you know, has done a fantastic job there of surveying students and finding out what's important to them. If political parties want that 35% um, to vote, they need to address those issues. And those issues are really faced by young people across the board. And um, um, I won't be able to give you the direct reference, so forgive me, but I heard a, a survey recently where if you combine all the voting intentions of people under 50 in this country for the next general election, 80% of people under 50 will vote for people who aren't um, conservatives, the more progressive parties. So the, you know, the idea that these matter not only to young people, but also what we would have previously thought of as as fairly middle-aged, and that is things like housing, inequalities in access to health, um, the 
you know, 60% of people who, who own their own house and 40% of people who don't, that's, that's a massive inequality. And younger people see that they may never have a house or they may have to wait till their, you know, their parents no longer need it, if I can put it delicately. So that sense of um, political parties understanding what is important to young people and that manifesto is a good start because it, they're, they're things that matter to broadly across access to health, access to education, access to house. It's not much to ask for, is it? So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Helen, Speeter, Sunday, DK, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week. I promise Mark will be here. And until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.